Last week. Who remembers last week? Does anybody remember last week? What did you have for breakfast yesterday morning? Does anybody remember that? We've got to think about it for a while, right? Last week, we talked about presence. And the, uh, the, uh, actually, the title of, of the message was all about presence. How apropos, right? And we talked about, and this is something that I've been saying for a while, that 90% of the spiritual journey, 90% of our spiritual formation is really just presence. It's showing up and being present and being absolutely aware. Why? Why would that be the case? Because if you think about it, presence isn't mentioned that much in the Gospels, is it? You don't see presence mentioned in the New Testament in the Gospels. Why would I be so focused on presence as being such a huge part of the spiritual journey? Really, if you think about it, what is the church focused on? The church has been much more focused on theology, hasn't it? On law, on doctrine, on ritual. Church has been focused on getting us to be right thinking and about obedience to right action. You know, where's presence in all of that? What's going on? Last week, though, I was trying to show you how Jesus prized, valued, craved presence how he practiced presence. And we didn't even get into his prayer habits, his prayer habits to be able to go out, to need to go out at intervals when he was getting burned out, when he was just overwhelmed, to leave and then go out into desolate places, onto a hilltop, anywhere he could be alone. And not just for five or ten minutes. You know, he was probably gone for days at times like that. Where is the master? I don't know. Where is he going this time? He would go to those places. When he taught us how to pray, he said, don't be out in the middle of the marketplace like the hypocrites do. He said, you retire into your own closet. Retire into your inner space as well as a physical space. And get quiet. Get into that mode of presence. So it is there. It's woven in, even though it's not explicitly said. And if you think about it, though, Jesus was talking about presence all the time. But what he called it was love. Instead of calling it presence, he called it love. Now, I'm going to try to make the case here this morning that love and presence is the same thing. Is it really? Is love and presence the same thing? You know, I can't tell you for sure, but if not, I can at least tell you this for absolute certain, that you can't have one without the other. When Merton, Thomas Merton talked about love, He talked about it in a very profound way. He talked about the fact that love is not the emotions that we normally associate with love, whether it's affection or devotion. And he said love really isn't the behavior either, any behavior that we would see as loving, because those things come and go. Loving behavior can be done for unloving reasons, and, and it's all conflicted. What love really is, Merton said, was identification with the beloved. When you get to the point that the other is really seen as an extension of yourself, or it's getting difficult for you to tell where you end and the other begins, where everything that you do for the other, you're literally doing for yourself. And what you do for yourself, you're doing for the other. When all those lines get blurred, when two things become one, that's love. Out of that flows behavior that looks to us loving. Out of that flows feelings of affection that we call love. But the love is the identification. 
How can you identify with someone or something? How can you see them as the same as you without presence? How is that even possible? You know, in those drawing contests, sometimes they say, must be present to win. I love that, you know. I've tried that with my family. It doesn't work so well. You know, Marion and I will be out having a, a lunch or a dinner or something, and she says, shouldn't we bring home some food for the boys? And I turn to her and I say, must be present to win. It doesn't go over very well. We usually end up with doggy bags. Must be present to win, though. This is, this is the key here. Love is not possible without presence. To be fully aware in the moment is a prerequisite of love. How in the world can you love someone if you're not present to them? Why would that be? Each moment that we live contains a choice. Have you thought of it that way? Each moment contains a choice. Actually, I think it's even more than that. I think each moment is a choice. I think it's the existence of a choice that defines the moment. We wouldn't know that there was a moment if there wasn't a choice. Each moment is a choice, and there is no choice without a moment. If there's no choice, there is no moment. As long as we're living, there's always a choice to make. And even if that choice is only to be present in this moment, it's a choice. This moment you have right now, you're sitting here, feels this may be a little passive. You made the choice to come here, now you're sitting here. You have the choice to listen, or you have the choice to go into the laundry list that's in your head. You have the choice to get up and go and get a bagel. You have, the cho- you have many choices here. I think life is full of choices. We say life is defined by movement. Movement is a choice. We make the choice to move. You know, I'm watching me have these two little dogs that walk around the house. Sometimes I just watch them, especially the, the old pug, because she lives in kind of a fog anyway half the time. But I just watch her, and she just looks around, and then she goes that way. And then I see her coming back that way. <laughs> she's making choices. Why? I have absolutely no idea. It doesn't make any sense, but she's making choices. We make choices every moment, and that choice, I think, defines the moment. Each person we meet presents a choice to us. Each, each step we take is a choice we make. We have to understand this about our moments. They're defined by choices. We are making choices even when we think we're not making choices. And once we start to understand that and become more aware of the choices embedded in our moments, now the next question becomes, how do we make those choices? Well, there's two basic ways that we can make choices. And I want to talk about them both. The first one, though, is judgment. That's how we make most of our choices. We exercise judgment by applying everything that we've experienced and everything that we've learned to a given situation, to a person. What we were taught in our homes, what we were taught in our schools, what we've been taught by culture in general, by media, about law, about ethics, morality, religion, politics, relationship, everything that we've ever been taught becomes what some people call our narrative. That's kind of a nice big tent word. It's our narrative. It is the sum total of everything that we have absorbed, everything that we believe. It's our belief system. It's our our worldview. It's the ground on which we walk. It's our narrative. Everything that we believe is, is comprised in this body of knowledge and experience. 
We've learned that it's wisdom for us to take this body of knowledge and experience and bring everything that we know to bear on a certain situation. If you think about it, this is survival programming. This is, this is in the back, that lizard brain that they talk about. You know, that is all about survival. It's essential for us to be able to do this. We don't have time, especially when you think about when we were still either swinging in trees or when we were um, in tribal and subsistence communities and, and, and living uh, systems. We didn't have time to reevaluate every single threat. We didn't have time to evaluate every unknown because by the time that we went through that process, we would already be dead. So what we did was we take those experiences that we have, we take the cumulative experiences of our tribe, and we put things into boxes. We put them into categories, right? Pretty much across the board, snakes and spiders are scary, right? Snakes and spiders are a threat to us, but rabbits and butterflies are not. We have learned as a culture, we have learned as a people, certain things you got to watch out for. Other things we don't have to. And what does this allow us to do? It allows us to make split-second decisions that we need to make that save our lives. And this knowledge is cumulative. It is passed down from generation to generation. Imagine you're walking through the forest, and you see these delicious-looking red berries on a bush, and you go to pick one, and your mom slaps your hand out of the bush. Do not eat the red ones. Maybe it doesn't even explain to you. Just don't eat the red ones. Avoid the red ones. You know, she knows that they're poisonous. How many people had to die in order for that wisdom to be passed down? This is the cumulative wisdom. Avoid the red ones. You know? And then when we're avoiding the red ones, then we sort of generalize. And doesn't red just become a dangerous color to us? And it's the color of blood. You know? It's the color of fire. It's a color of dangerous things but it's also the color of strawberries and tomatoes and apples. So this learning experience allows us to quickly react, to avoid danger that has proven fatal in our culture. And so by extension, then any unknown, anything that doesn't fall into these neat boxes that we have all up on our shelves in our minds, we're going to treat as a threat until it's proven otherwise, right? Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. This is what we teach our, our kids. So at least we can put every unknown into another box, and we know how to treat that. And as I said, this is absolutely essential to exert this good judgment, to exercise this good judgment so that we can absolutely survive. Then Jesus comes and says, don't judge. Well, what the heck is going on here? Don't judge. Let's take a little read here. How does he actually say it at Matthew 7, starting at verse 1? He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why? Is he trying to get us to lose our survival programming? No, absolutely not. He's not doing that at all. But what he is doing is speaking within a spiritual and relational context. The lessons that he's giving us are supposed to be applied in a spiritual and relational context. And when it comes to people around us that we're dealing with all day long, this pre-programming, this programming that leads to these judgments, these boxes, puts the people in those boxes as well. We're making snap decisions about them. 
in a way that Jesus is not trying to get us to do. He's trying to help us to rise above the programming to create different relational effects. James, his brother, in the book of James, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, Hey, you sit here in this good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Why do we treat clothing differently? Why did James have to point this out that we're treating clothing differently? Because in all our experience, in all of our teaching, we have learned that wealthy people can be an advantage to us. Wealthy people can help us. Wealthy people can do things for us that poor people can't. The survival kicks in, the judgment kicks in, and we're going to treat them differently. Culturally, we are taught, and the Jews certainly of Jesus' day were taught, but we still have that here in our culture, that wealth equals God's favor. Wealth equals God's blessing. And if you don't have it, then you haven't been favored by God. We're going to want to rub up against those people who have God's favor because maybe some of it's going to rub off on us, right? Survival programming. We don't even necessarily realize that this is what we're doing. It's built into us to make these distinctions. A few years ago, um, Pat and Shirley Boone were with us for, what, six, seven years? Almost, uh, you know, at least two, three Sundays a month. I didn't even realize that we were doing it, but we treated them differently, didn't we? You know, I think actually we were pretty good. We were pretty mellow about it. We didn't make a big deal, but we did. I mean, we had a national icon in our little midst here. And we treated them differently. We treated them with greater respect. You know, some of us did ask for his autograph on certain things. And And when we actually went to lunch afterwards, that's where we really saw it. People coming up to the table and asking for his autograph and talking to him with, you know, great reverence and all of this. We treat people differently. And we don't even realize that we're doing it. It's kind of an amazing thing to behold. We do it all the time. We judge people on appearances. It's clothing, you know positive and negative. For a woman, is the clothing immodest? Is, is the woman too, showing too much skin? How do we then, what box do we put her in, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, Is the clothing rich? Is the clothing poor? Is the clothing in our estimate appropriate for wherever it is that we happen to be, whether it's church or whatever? What about hair? How much do we, choo- do we uh, judge people by hair and put them in boxes? If it's a man, is it too long? If it's a woman, is it too short? Is it dirty? Is it clean? Is, is, is it styled appropriately? Is it rainbow-colored? Where is John? <laughs> you know, all these things. Do we judge people by that? Ethnicity, of course. What, what has all this last few months been about? But us judging people based on their ethnicity, based on their skin color. Judgments that we made. Boxes we put people in. Education. As soon as you hear a person speak or you get an email from them, maybe the grammar is wrong. Are we making judgments based on that? Based on sex. Marion just got a job in the garden department at Home Depot, and she was really feeling, you know, being a second-class citizen because she wasn't being some strapping guy who could throw 50-bag sacks of mulch, 50-pound sacks of mulch over her shoulder. 
No, ah, she did it. <laughs> even though you don't even think about these things, and we haven't gotten into religion and politics and music even. I think there's probably more fighting in the church over music than there is about theology, to tell you the truth. You know? Especially when I was coming up and we were introducing new styles of music. Wow. See where people get on that and how upset they get. And this new judgment that is upon us all right now, right? Masks. How do we judge people about masks? Now, with a mask, there is a medical component to it, right? That obviously a mask has, has, has medical value here in the time of a pandemic. And there's still arguments on both sides. But where we have taken this judgment about masks goes way beyond the medical value. Now we're moving it into a moral place. We're moving it into an ethical place. How do you react when you see someone with a mask? How do you react if you see someone without a mask? You know, There are these visceral reactions. Obviously, no one in this room, but there are these visual, vis, visceral reactions that I'm hearing about and we're watching play out in the news and in the media. Why did Jesus tell us don't judge. Because the judging and the programming that precedes the judging, the standards that we carry around in our head, the categories, the boxes that we carry around our, in our head, allows us to make these split-second choices, these knee-jerk reactions. It allows us to make choices from afar based on the box that we put someone in. We can see them across the parking lot, and we already have them in a box. We already have them in a category. In other words, judging allows us to make choices about people without being present to them. Do you see what's going on here? We don't have to be present. I don't have to know you to know that I don't like you or that I can't partner with you based on the box that I have put you in, based on my programming that I've carried around for 40 years. I don't have to be present to you to make that choice. And the programming that we're using, Jesus is telling us, is actually using us. The programming that we're using to put people in boxes is putting us in those same boxes. We're programmed for non-presence. We're programmed for separation. We're programmed to keep ourselves isolated from the very people that we need to connect with. If we're going to live in kingdom, and we're saying that we're following Jesus and our whole purpose is to live in kingdom, and yet we're still judging, we're still distinguishing, we're still separating, love is not possible without presence. It can't exist. And Jesus is asking us to throw out the programming so that we can really see each other. Take a look at James 4. His brother really picks up on all of this. And when you think about James, his book was probably the first book of the epistles that was written, probably in the early 40s, you know, just not even 10 years after the crucifixion. He's taking over the Jerusalem community for his brother Jesus, and he's trying to get the community to really immerse in these principles that his brother taught. They're giving lip service to it, but they're not living it out. And so he's trying so hard. And in chapter 4, verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. What the heck does that mean? But if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law? 
You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver, only one judge, and the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this makes really no sense until we put it back into context. What in the world does he mean? If we speak against a brother or judge another, that we speak against the law and judge the law? If we think about it the way we typically think of law, this makes no sense. But what he's talking about is making a distinction here between the Torah law, the written law, and even the oral tradition, the oral law, the law that we have inherited from the church. He's making a a distinction between that law and what he calls the law of liberty, the law of love. Very different. He's trying to get people to make the distinction. What is going on here? It is the written law that creates the judgment, allows us to create the boxes to put people in, allows us to live with the contempt and live with the separation that goes with someone who is not following the same law that we're following, that is not in the same box that we are in. To judge breaks the law of love that must supersede it if we're going to live in kingdom, if we're going to live in love. He's trying to make that distinction. Hopefully when you read it again, you can see that. When we just follow the rules, when we just put people in boxes and judge them, especially if we judge them with contempt, then we are breaking the law of love. The two are incompatible. And so this gives us the second way that we can make choices. To choose in each moment what love really requires. Not to just put the person in a box. Not to just overlay what we already think we know onto a situation. But to choose what love requires in the moment. And what does love require in the moment? First and always, love requires presence. Love requires that you are present, that you are there, that you really see the person you're with. You see the situation that you are in, that they are in, and that you are absolutely willing to throw out the rule book if what love requires in that moment even requires you to break the code of the law, to throw away your programming at any moment in order to be able to deliver what is really going to alleviate the suffering, what is really going to preserve life, what is really going to fulfill the intent of the law, even if you have to break the letter of the law. You know, we've had been this experiment or this exercise so many times in here, and, and I ask the question, is lying always wrong? You know, And when we do it and we go through it, Many hands go up. Yes, lying is always wrong. Others, I see heads shaking over here already. Lying is not always wrong. Well, lying is unlawful. So if all we're going to do is to bring what we know, what we've been taught, we're going to bring the law to bear, then lying is always wrong because it is unlawful. But what love requires us to do is to look at the intent. Look at what is going on. Look who we are with and make the choice. We always talk about you're in 1940s Germany with Jews in the attic and the Gestapo's at your door. What do you say? In order to preserve life, in order to alleviate suffering, in order to bring community together, you lie. 
It's not always wrong. How do you know the difference when lying is wrong or not? There's only one way to do that. You have to be present to the situation. You have to actually see what is going on. Present to the people, present to the circumstance, so you can preserve life and alleviate suffering. And you have to realize that the programming and the judgment is not what is absolute. The law is not what is absolute. It's just a guide. The law defines the ballpark in which we play, defines the playing field in which we play. But it cannot make the choice for us. If we do that, we're passive. If we do that, we're not present. If we're not present, we're not in love. What did every Nazi war criminal say at Nuremberg? I was just following orders. As if that's a defense. It wasn't a defense legally, and it's not a defense spiritually either. We can't just say that we're following orders, we're following rules, we're following commandments as we hurt our brothers and sisters, as we make choices that create more separation, that create greater suffering. We have to see this. Our choices define us. Not what we believe. Our choices define us. And they are always ours to make and ours alone. We can't abdicate this. And our choices can only be made in love if they are made in presence, in awareness of everything that is around us. I think Paul does a brilliant job at Romans 14 of trying to get some of these concepts across. Take a look at Romans 14. We'll just go verse 1 to 4. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that they may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. All right, what the heck is he talking about? It's not going to make any sense until we get some context here. What is going on in the, in the first century church and Paul is right in the thick of it because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, is the breakdown between the Jewish and the Gentile followers of Jesus. Now, the Jewish followers of Jesus within the sect that Jesus actually came from, Jewish, following the dietary and purity codes and everything that the Torah commanded. And they felt that that was the basis of the faith that was following Jesus. So when the Gentiles come along standing well outside the law and not following any of these codes... They're telling them they need to become Jewish first. They need to follow these codes first. And one of the main restrictions on the, on the dietary codes was on meat. There were no restrictions on vegetables. You could eat any plant you wanted to eat. But the meat was highly restricted. First of all, there were clean animals and there were unclean animals. And there was lots of reasons or lots of characteristics that, that um, divided the line between what was clean and unclean. And, and then there were the way that the meat was prepared. It had to be prepared. We call it kosher now, but it was the way that the blood was taken out before the animal was this and that and the other thing. So it had to be prepared in just a special way. The other thing is you couldn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, we think that when you brought a, an animal to the, the altar to be sacrificed, that they burned the whole thing, but they didn't do that. They just cut a certain portion out, usually the fat, burned that. And then the rest of the animal was then butchered and sold as any other animal was. And that was part of the proceeds that came back to the temple. 
You weren't supposed to eat that meat and was sacrificed to idols. Not only that, to make things even more complicated, in the Greek world, the pagans, the, the Romans and the Greeks, they were sacrificing animals to their gods. And only a portion was actually burned and the rest would go for sale. So you got clean, you got unclean, you got kosher, and you got sacrificed animals, and now it's just all under cellophane in the, in the meat market. No, they didn't have cellophane there. I mean, just hyperbole. Once it's just cuts of meat in the market, how can you tell if it's clean or if it's unclean, if it was prepared properly or if it was sacrificed? There's, there's no way. And so those who were trying to follow kosher didn't eat meat at all. They only ate the vegetables. Now, what Paul is trying to do is to wean the people off of this system. You don't need to follow that system anymore. Jesus has obviated the system. He's made it so we don't need it anymore. He is the system. He has, he has completed this once and for all. So he says someone who is still weak in that faith doesn't, hasn't gotten to the liberty of the Christian position, then they're going to just eat the vegetables. But don't hold them in contempt because they're doing that. And if you're the one who is eating just the vegetables, don't hold the Gentiles in contempt because they're eating meat. He's trying to get them to see past these things. So let's start again. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purposes of passing judgment on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. And that last bit there is, why would you go judge a servant for the way that the servant is serving his master? That's not for you to say. The master is the one who needs to judge his own servant for the way he may or may not be performing his duties. And he's extending that to us and our master in heaven. So see what he's doing, what he's trying to get us to understand. Can we be present enough to see why people choose what they choose? There are usually reasons for everyone's choice. And some of those reasons are good. Even if we disagree with them, we can still look at them and say, I can see why you would choose that. I can see why you believe that. And this happens on every side of an argument. Can we be present enough? Can we be loving enough to honor the choices of someone else? What Paul is saying here is that whatever we choose, look at how he says this. No, I need to read a little further here. In verse 5 to 9, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. So now we're moving just not just from the dietary codes, but from the actual calendar and the days that they held as special feast days and pilgrimage festivals. Some people are going to follow those. Some are going to not follow them. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, 
We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Can we be present enough to see the reasons for the choices that others make? And can we be present and loving enough to honor their choices? And then Paul says, because whatever we choose is sacred to us if that's the reason we chose it. Whether you eat or whether you don't eat, whether you honor this day or whether you don't honor this day, if you're doing it for the Lord, it is a sacred act, even though they seem diametrically opposed. It is not the thing that you do that is important. It is the intention for which you do it. Paul is trying to get us to see. If the reason we chose something is for sacred, it is sacred. Not just one rule is going to fit everything. And then he finishes off, starting at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. There's so much in there. Can we be present enough to bend the rules for the sake of another? If we feel that we have the freedom to eat meat, don't eat meat even if you have that freedom, if it offends or will break the relationship with another person. Just don't go there. Be present enough to know how to honor the other and make that relationship more important than the position that you hold. Make that relationship more important than what you think is sacred because the sacredness is not in the thing itself but the intention with which you bring it. I love telling the story from the ancient desert fathers and mothers about two monks. One of them was a young acolyte, a young monk, and his elder, the elder monk. And the young monk was fasting. And they both got invited to a dinner by uh, someone in the community. And so they both go to the dinner. And the hosts were so excited to have these monks over, they just, you know, threw out the dog and pony show, right? They put it, They put on a great feast and they put everything on the table and the young monk who was fasting he took one pea and put it on his plate and you can kind of imagine him cutting it into half and he ate the one pea and then just sat there and ate nothing else the rest of the of the meal that was what was sacred to him he thought because he was honoring his fast when they were leaving and walking back home again he gets rebuked by the elder monk he says what did you just do there? You fully dishonored our hosts. You insulted our hosts. Well, I was fasting. He said, next time you're fasting and you get invited to dinner, don't go. <laughs> just don't go. And if you do go, eat everything that they put in front of you. 
because it's the honorable thing to do. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But we hold so hard to the programming, so hard to the, the judgment, so hard to the boxes and categories we put everything in. This is sacred. This is not. This honors God. This does not. And if this doesn't fit into one of these boxes, that and our relationships are just falling by the wayside. Someone was telling me a story about him. He's one of, he's one of the guys who believes that you know, masks aren't doing us any good. You know, in fact, masks are an infringement on our civil rights, you know. And so he, you know, piously does not wear a mask. <laughs> and he's made that a point in this entire lockdown. And then a neighbor asked him for some help at their house, had to put a piece of furniture together or something, and she needed his help. And so he said, sure, I'll help you. And he, he goes to her house and she says, oh, but you got to wear a mask inside. He stopped for a second had a little bit of discussion, and he think, what am I doing here? I need to help this person. So he put on a mask, and he went in, and he did whatever he needed to do. Can we be present enough to be able to do that, to realize that our rules are not more important than the person who's right in front of us? Can we do what love requires because we have been present enough to see what love requires? I like to tell this story because uh, Marion and I had uh, a friend live with us for about a year and a half. I won't mention his name. Who was a recovering alcoholic. And so before he showed up, we took any of the booze that we had in the pantry and we poured it down and we you know, just cleaned everything out because we wanted to have a good environment for him. And, uh, and we didn't drink the whole time he was there and we didn't have any alcohol in the house. And uh, when he left, it was, I don't know, I think it was years after he left, he told me that there was in the pantry one little lone half bottle of Kahlua right up in the front in the side. And he found it in there. And he said, every morning I would go and I would open the pantry door and I'd look up at this bottle. And I said, why didn't you just tell me? And he just told me I would have gotten rid of it and poured it down, no temptation. He goes, no, you know what? Every day I went and looked at that bottle and I said, not today. <laughs> not today. And he shut the door. Next day, not today, shut the door. It was something that he needed. But we were trying to clear the space for him. We were doing something that we didn't need to do, but it was for him. He was doing something he needed to do. And that's the way the world works, and it's so beautiful. When we can get into that space with each other, and we can let go of all the pre-programming that puts us on autopilot, that allows us to live life at these distances from each other, of non-presence, because I don't have to know you. I just have to know what box you're in. Now, yes, that works with spiders and snakes and red berries that are poisonous in the forest, but it doesn't work with people, and it doesn't work with our spirituality. And if we really want to follow Jesus, if we really want to live in kingdom, then we need to throw the rule book out and just go with presence. And yes, the rules are there. They still define the playing field for us. They show us the extremes that we shouldn't exceed and fall into the ditch. But within that playing field, it's our choice that defines our moment. And we need to take that moment by the horns and actually live it, act it out. It all comes back to presence. 
It's called love in the New Testament, but it's love, it's presence. These are interchangeable terms as far as I'm concerned. They're integral, they're essential to each other. This is why the way of Jesus and the way of contemplative spirituality is often called the practice of presence. Brother Lawrence comes to mind, the practice of presence. Once we are totally present, we can't help but start falling in love, falling in kingdom. But we have to be present to do it. That's our purpose, to fall in love, not to follow rules. Our purpose here as human beings is to fall in love with each other and fall in love with creation and live the reality of that love, not to follow rules. And it's only in presence that we can know the difference. Jesus is leading us to that difference. It's all about presence. It's all about love. Can we let go of anything that would get in between? Let's pray. Father, your presence is absolute. We can tune in any time, and you're always there. Help us to learn from your presence how our presence can be more and more in tune, more and more an integral part of our lives. Help us to value presence so much that we will do the work that it takes to be able to reliably and repeatedly create it in our moments. Help us to carve out time to meditate, to, to prayer wordlessly, and to learn to step away from all the distractions so that we can be present in our prayer closet so that when we walk out and enter our day, we can be more and more present to everyone around us and everything around us that gives a shape to our lives, gives purpose to our lives. Father, so many of us are hurting from the perceived lack of purpose and meaning, from feeling like every day is just a repeat of the day before and we're spinning, we're not going anywhere. Help us to see that it's only in presence that a sense of meaning and purpose and identity and forward motion starts to propel us again. That it's only in presence that we will find everything that we really crave, need, and help us to let go of anything that would get in the way. Thank you for being the perfect model for everything that we need in this life. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. And never let, let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Would you all stand?